Discover why critics are calling Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes the best film of the franchise. What a wonderful day! It's a jaw-dropping spectacle that demands to be seen on the biggest screen possible. I need to go. Hang on. It is our time. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Now playing only in theaters. Tickets on sale now. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. After the end of a good fight, you deserve an ice-cold reward. Medela, you put in the hours, the energy, the tough labor, because you know the bigger the fight, the better the reward. Medela, the mark of the fight. Drink responsibly. Beer imported by Crown Import, Chicago, Illinois. I'd rather have a bottle in front of me than a frontal lobotomy. It's 1975, and the movie is One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Welcome to Unspooled. I am Paul Shear, and this is the podcast where we go through the AFI's 100 Greatest Films of All Time, the 2007 edition, to see if they are really as good as people say. Do they hold up? And how have they influenced the films that we watch today? Amy Nicholson is in Sundance right now, but she'll be talking about One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest in just a couple of minutes. Let's hear from you, because last week we asked you, who is the most evil doctor that you remember from film? And your answers were... Pretty great. Take a listen. My favorite evil doctor is Robert Ledger, played by Antonio Banderas, in Pedro Almodovar's Devilish and Disturbing. The most evil doctor, of course, is Dr. Zell, played by Laurence Olivier in Marathon Man. The most evil and frightening medical professional in the films was Sir Laurence Olivier playing the dentist in Marathon Man. Gives me chills just to think about it. The worst, most evil doctor in all of film that I could think of off the top of my head was Dr. Saperstein from Rosemary's Baby. Hi, this is Sarah from Columbus, Ohio, and my favorite bad doctor is Dr. Jason Woodrow, who is responsible for creating Poison Ivy in the 1997 classic film Batman and Robin. Yes, my favorite evil doctor would have to be Dr. Herbert West from uh, Reanimator. Uh Beverly and Elliot Mantle, Jeremy Irons' characters in Dead Ringers. I'm pretty sure that Steve Martin, as the dentist in Little Shop of Horrors, is one of the worst medical professionals in film. And I'm pretty sure that he is part of the reason why I'm still terrified of the dentist to this day. That's amazing. You know what? I wouldn't have thought of Steve Martin right out of the gate. Uh, Marathon Man, 100%. I mean, that's just pure evil. But Steve Martin, I think he's worse. Steve Martin, Little Shop of Horrors. That is a good, good call. All right. Now, let's get into our feature presentation. The year is 1975. The Steelers won the Super Bowl. The mood ring was created. People were into caring for pet rocks. The movie Jaws scared people away from beaches. The Ford F-150 truck was introduced. And... 
This movie's episode, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, won all the Academy Awards. That's right, the big five. Best picture, best director, best actor, best actress, and best writing. It was number 20 on the original AFI list and is now number 33 on the 2007 list. Amy, let's talk about One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Let's talk about it. But also, to put it into perspective, the last time a film won the big five like that, yeah, that was it happened one night. Another film on our list that came out in 1935. Oh, wow. Three years went by without another film taking the big five. Has it happened again? It has happened once more since then. Silence of the Lambs. So, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, it stars Jack Nicholson as Randall McMurphy. You got Louise Fletcher as Nurse Ratchet. You got Will Sampson as Chief Bromden. You got William Redfield as Dale Harding. You have a bunch of unknown, newish at the time faces playing other people in the mental institution who have since... Become giant stars. We're talking Danny DeVito, Christopher Lloyd, Brad Dorff, Vincent Schiavelli, got Scatman Crothers. You got everybody in this movie. And what it's about is it is about a man who has been serving time in jail for statutory rape. He decides that he'll get a better go of his time in lockup if he's in a mental hospital. He won't have to work in like the work fields doing labor in the sun. He can hide out, hang out with the crazies, play poker until he realizes that being locked up means that he is an involuntary prisoner and he cannot get out. And this man loses his freedom. That man being Jack Nicholson and his main antagonist, Nurse Ratchet. Now, Amy, what's your gut on this movie? Where do you fall on One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest? I mean, it's a movie with hella amazing performances. Yeah. I mean, this is a film that's like so alive with the actors on the frame. This is a movie that is so watchable. It's so endlessly watchable. This movie has such a sense of play and fun that you really see what McMurphy sees in these characters. It's not just, you know, about him fucking up the system. It's about him trying to get these people back into the real world. When you see horrible things start to happen to these characters, it hits you on such a deeper emotional level because you really have spent a lot of time with them. Each one of these characters is so fully fleshed out. It's true. I mean, you know what? We should, before we really, 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 really dive in, Mm -hmm. we should jump back just even 13 more years and talk about One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest itself as a book. Yes. Because when this movie came out, it was basically like, oh, here's like Fifty Shades. Here's like a giant bestseller that everybody knows turned into a movie. Right. And it's a book that became kind of the Bible of counterculture. You know, it really was like, you know, bucking authority. And I think that that's something, especially on this watch, that I really related to. It's it's a movie that feels very present right now. Do you stay in line or, or do you voice your displeasure? Do you make yourself uh, an individual? And and that's what's kind of fighting this <laughs> whole film. <laughs> and that's so funny that you put it that way, because like when the movie came out, a lot of the reviews I read were like, it's good, but God, it's really dated. We're not like that anymore. Because in oh, the wow. 70s, people felt a little calmer, I yeah. guess. But yeah, so the story here is Ken Kesey, he wrote the book, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. People know him because he is the inspiration for the electric Kool-Aid acid test. Uh, he is a guy who became somebody who participated in the experiments of MKUltra. Do you know what those are? No. Okay, so MKUltra is when the CIA decided that they were going to test different psychoactive drugs to see if any of them were any use to them. Would they be good for, like, say, interrogating suspects? Got it. So they had a bunch of people at different labs all over the country, some people involuntarily who are working for the CIA, if you believe some of the stories that have been coming out that seem fairly well documented, take a lot of LSD, take all sorts of things, try mescaline, put a bunch of people on drugs and see what happened. So Ken Kesey was one of them. He was a grad student at Stanford and in 1959, he signs up. 
uh, he starts taking like mescaline and LSD. And then he kept hanging out at the Menlo Veterans Hospital where he got to know a bunch of the patients and he got to see things like lobotomies and electroshock therapy. And he got this real deep sense that what we call insanity is not insanity. He believed that there are people who are different, but they're not insane. And so he wrote this book that came out in 1962 that was kind of this more like comic isn't the right word, but like exaggerated, more Hunter S. Thompson-y kind of yeah. tone. Not like the naturalism of the film, but like a larger tone about these guys in a hospital fighting this nurse ratchet. In the book, he wrote her as like this giant, horrible, universally horrible woman who only ever hired sadists to beat people up, had these huge breasts at the end of the book, her breasts get exposed. Like he made this cartoon of like the little guy and the evil big institution. There's like, the book was very accused of misogyny when it came out to the point that when they started to cast for One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, I mean, they asked Every major actress on the planet, they asked like Angela Lansbury, Jane Fonda, Faye Dunaway, Ellen Burstyn, Aunt Bancroft. They all said no because the character in the book was so awful. Right. And I think one of the things I really like about the film and the version of her in the film is that you can see her point of view. She's not a full villain. I think that she is someone who works in the establishment and has a way of doing things. Yes, she's manipulative, but she's also just doing her job. Yeah, like, I mean, we haven't gotten to the critical part of this yet where I like read old reviews, but Pauline Kael, who, you know, liked the film fairly, I think she kind of sums this up really well. She says, those who know the book will probably feel that Nurse Ratched is more human, but those who haven't read it may be appalled at her inhumanity. Mm. So she's sort of drawing that line between here's what she might seem if you had never met this character, but if you had met the character in Ken Kesey's version, oh, she's so much more of... A three-dimensional woman. I mean, even Kankisi, he like ran into the nurse that he based her on when he was older later in life. And he said, she was much smaller than I remembered. And she was a whole lot more human, which is not her changing. It's him changing. But yes. And, you know, if we're staying back in 13 years before this film is made, I think it's interesting to note that you have Kirk Douglas, who loves this book and adapts it to a play, a very successful play, and then is trying to get it made into a film. But No one wants to make it, which is kind of amazing because it's such a solid idea. But I guess they ran the numbers at one point. They realized, oh, movies and mental institutions don't do that well. It's not a great financial investment that they wanted to change the ending um, and so on and so forth. They couldn't find a director. And Kirk Douglas ages out of the part. uh, And it's sort of sitting on a shelf when Michael Douglas, Kirk's son, takes it over as a producer starts to attach talent to it. And then this movie comes back and Kirk Douglas still, who, you know, I think in an interview in the last couple of years is like, I regret not playing that part, is now forced to watch his baby kind of be executed by his son and this other actor, a huge actor at the time, Jack Nicholson, who was so busy and so big at this moment that they had to wait months to shoot this film simply because Jack Nicholson was busy. Yeah, I mean, Jack Nicholson is, like, huge at this point. Like, he had just really burst out into the screen with Easy Rider, like, five, six years before. But since then, it was like, boom, 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 boom. He had just made Chinatown. He had just gotten, like, a really fucked up phone call. Do you do you know this story about Jack no. Nicholson? No. Okay, so when Jack Nicholson suddenly became, like, the biggest star, I mean, he was getting, like, back-to-back-to-back Oscar nominations. He gets this call from a Time magazine writer who's doing a profile on him. And they're like, oh, hey, we were doing this, like, background research on you, Jack. You know, we were writing about you. It's really interesting. You know, we found out this interesting thing about your parents. They are not your parents. What? Did you not know this? No. Oh, oh, oh. 
hey, hello. Wow. Hang on to your headphones. Yeah, now his parents were actually his grandparents. His sister June, who had been always, always raised to think of as his sister, that was actually his mom. She was like a teen mom. Um, wow. And so she just grew up as his sister, but she had already died by the time he got this phone call. So here he is, Oof. huge star, just learns out this crazy thing about his own family that he can't even talk to anybody in his family with and reconcile. And then he makes one flavor of the cuckoo's nest. I will say, um, while they waited for Jack to be available for this film, they did get to spend a lot more time finding their cast of characters. It's something that Michael Douglas and Milos Forman really attribute to the success of this film. They said that they were able to take a moment and see each person and build this ward in a way that I think plays wonderfully. I mean, this ensemble of this film is just absolutely amazing. And I was actually really surprised, and this is a weird deep cut, that Christopher Lloyd, who is in this movie, basically reprises his role like in the 80s in a movie that I grew up with called The Dream Team, where Michael Keaton plays like a version of R.P. McMurphy and takes his mental ward out for a day in New York City. Want to hear like a little bit of the trailer and just take a look at this movie. Four major league psychotics. I've never agreed with that diagnosis. We're on a field trip to a ball game. When their doctor disappeared. We've run into one complication. Murder. What'd you say? Can you recommend a good clinical psychiatrist in the neighborhood? We seem to have lost ours. Now. We ran into a little snag out here. Somebody's trying to kill Dr. Weitzman. I feel my doctor may have been seized by the Romans. They're on their own. Kind of wanted by the police right now. Bummer. They're off their medication. It's great to be young and insane. And they're about to give the world a dose of reality. Michael Keaton, Christopher Lloyd, Peter Boyle, Stephen First. This is crazy. I can relate to that. I got news for you psychos. We're getting better. Yeah! The Dream Team. I just... What was that? (laughs) It is like, I remember when I was watching this movie, I couldn't help but think like, oh, this is just a fully comedic version of this movie. I would consider this a companion piece to Cuckoo's Nest. Wow, a double feature? Is that what you're recommending? (laughs) And also, this movie really reminded me of Cool Hand Luke. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's such a, a similar idea, you know, this kind of person who rebels against authority gets put in a position where there's a big authority figure and it roughly ends the same. A person who can't help trying to make dares to prove that they're the coolest person in lockup. All that to be said that uh, <laughs> go watch the dream team. <laughs> Discover why critics are calling Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes the best film of the franchise. What a wonderful day! It's a jaw-dropping spectacle that demands to be seen on the biggest screen possible. I need to go. Hang on. It is our time. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Now playing only in theaters. Tickets on sale now. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. I wanted to actually start at the very beginning. Yes. 
a, a natural place to start. Uh, first, just with the tiny aside, that this movie opens with an unironic hawk squawking. Can we just appreciate that? It's interesting that you noticed the squawk, which I appreciate, but I also was kind of wondering, what does this opening shot have to do really with the film? Because I guess you later learn it's Nurse Ratchet driving to the institution, I guess? I think so. That's what I was going to ask you. You know, so that people can picture this, you're just looking at this beautiful daybreak shot. You got a lake, you got mountains, it's gorgeous. The film has kind of these mirrored shots, you know, two daybreak shots. One is this shot, and then B is the closing shot is when the chief throws the water fountain through the window and escapes, and he runs out over similar mountains. What's interesting is, like, in the middle of the film, the hospital looks nothing like this, and it's, like, right by a very, very busy street. So this is definitely not the view out the window's front yard. Right. Uh, But, yeah, you have this car approaching, and I wanted to ask you, who is that car? Like, I thought it was Nurse Ratchet, but it could also be Jack Nicholson because we see him pull up in a car right after that. Yeah. And I feel like whoever you think it is, whether it's the doctor pulling in or whether it's the patient who's going to disturb everything arriving, I think it changes the tone a little bit. Just there's a tiny micro shift. And I wasn't sure who you thought it was or who I think it is. Well, I think that the way it's edited is it's telling you it's Nurse Ratchet because it immediately cuts to her checking in for her morning routine. Whereas I think if it was supposed to be Jack Nicholson's character, you would kind of cut to him first. I think it's way more interesting to have Jack Nicholson's character cut through this silence and this pristine world because he's about to upend it. I think that that's something interesting. Or you can look at it and say, it's Nurse Ratchet, and this is the ordered world that she lives in. We're, we're living in this world that is pristine and perfect and clean and and then Jack Nicholson comes in and upends all that. So it can go either way, really. It really could go either way. Because you're right. Like, we see her first. So in editing language, that's probably her. But then we just see her walk in, whereas we see Jack Nicholson get out of a car. Yeah. And here, you know what? We should even just listen to a little bit of the soundtrack that's mm-hmm. going as this car blares. Because there's so many interesting kind of layers to it and what it's saying. Definitely a very tone-setting kind of music. Now, I'm really fascinated by this music because of that drum beat. And it feels to me like a drum beat that you might hear in a Native American ceremony. That's what kind of I was thinking about. And I knew in the book, the main narrator is Chief. So I was like, oh, I wonder if that's like kind of the music is kind of throwing to him a little bit. Because we're talking about bookends again. This movie opens and closes with the bookends of this vista and chief obviously is the one who's kind of escaping one's going in one's going out. But I didn't know if that, if that music was kind of showing you like, this is our character. Yeah. Cause it definitely, you're right. does have that sort of like spiritual thumping, almost prayer drum yeah. sound with it. But then you've got, and I'm not the best with identifying instruments, but that's a theremin. I right? believe so. Yeah. You're an instrument that is like, to me, the sound of madness. Yeah. Like layered over something. You have this simple, simple, simple beat that's not doing anything. It's not getting fancy. It's like a heartbeat, really. Right. And then this clash of like a cerebral, strange sound. And then in the background, more like kind of violins that sort of seem to belong to some other type of music. Entirely different. Well, how about this? Are we living in a world that says... The drum beat 
or the violin is normal and the theremin is wrong, but the theremin is an instrument. Can't we just be a theremin and can't you be a violin and can't someone else be a guitar? You know, in this movie, I think posits a world where everyone has to be the same. And that's the, the order of this ward is sanding down the rough edges of people. So by putting that theremin in, it's kind of disrupting the traditional way of going about things. And it's odd. And we have to take that out. I love that because the theremin is such a beautiful disruptor. I think it's beautiful. Yeah. You but know then what? we cut to the ward and you have all the men sleeping. You have the American flag like your hey, subtle, like this is political. We're just going to make it tiny political. Just be aware of politics. Here's an American flag in the corner of the ward. I'm not going to mention it again, but there it is. Then you have Nurse Ratchet come in and this kind of cool green real hospital that they filmed it in, kind of green toned and whites. This whole film is done in like kind of minty ice cream shop gone mm. old pastels. Like you broke into an old ice cream shop from the 20s that's it, been dusty. It feels to me like every elementary school nurse's office. You know, it's sort of like cold, you know, no personality here. And then she comes in and I have to say, I know there's a lot of talk about Nurse Ratchet as the, you know, one of the most evil characters in cinema history. In this watch of it, I don't walk away thinking that she's evil. I know we talked a little bit earlier about Louise Fletcher and her idea of treating this character as someone who really wants to help these people. Is she doing it the best way she can? In her mind, I think she is. I feel sympathy for her because when she walks in, she does greet the staff. She does greet the nurses. She's not like, for lack of a better term, like a dick. Her face and the way that she exists in this film, only at the end do you see her really start to lose it. But she seems angelic. I kind of agree. Like, I don't think I ever had so much affection for Nurse Ratchet as I did on this watch. My heart breaks in that moment at the end when she picks up the dirty hat, like when her hat's been on the ground. And you just see her holding that and looking at it. She's got emotions. She is a human being. If you're running a mental ward, do you want one of your patients to be rebelling? Absolutely not. She deals with McMurphy in a way that I feel like is fair until she gets vindictive. Because there's a moment where they could put him back in jail. And instead, in that moment, she's like, no, I'm going to keep him here. And I won. And when she makes that decision, like, I'm going to teach him a lesson, that's when everything goes off course. Okay, wait, wait, wait. That decision, let's listen to that decision. Okay. So Jack Nicholson has just hijacked the bus, driven everybody without actually asking anyone Mm -hmm. to go on a boat ride. Yes. They've had a nice time. By the way, two things about that boat ride. Yeah. It's in the original novel, but as a field trip that was scheduled. And in this film, it was the only thing that Milos Forman did not want to shoot. He thought it would wreck the ending of the film to give these characters this freedom. So the movie was shot uh, pretty much chronologically, but that sequence was the last thing that they shot because he really fought against it. He thought that it would really let the air out of the film. And I, and I would argue that moment is actually really special and helps the film because it gets you out and it, it, it shows you these characters can exist without, you know, going crazy like the dream team. Exactly. And so like he takes this boat out. Luckily, nobody like dies, mm-hmm. which, you know, people, people could have died. Uh, absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> uh, people could have totally died. He takes the boat back in and because a bunch of people have been, you know, like 
escaped from the mental asylum. There are like helicopters and cops are out on the dock. There's also Angelica Houston. You can see her real briefly just as one of the townspeople leaning over the railing. I did not see her. at the boat coming in. But because of that, they do have this meeting of like, can we have this guy in the psych ward? Because by this point, all of the doctors are very sure, as they have been basically from the beginning, mm-hmm. that Jack Nicholson is not crazy. Jack Nicholson is just faking crazy to be in the institution. So they have their meeting about it. Everybody's talking about their theory about what they should do with him. And this is how she says she wants to keep him there. And you know what? When I saw this scene this time, I believed her. I'd like to send him back to the uh, work farm, frankly. Is there anybody uh, that you have uh, on your staff that could uh, relate to him, maybe understand him, help him out with some of these problems? Well, the funny thing is that the person that he's the closest to is the one he dislikes the most. (laughs) Oh, sure. That's you, Mildred. Well, gentlemen, in my opinion, if we send him back to Pendleton or we send him up to Disturbed, it's just one more way of passing on our problem to somebody else. You know, we don't like to do that. So I'd like to keep him on the ward. I think we can help him. So you think she's being insincere? I don't think she's being insincere. I think that she wants to win this battle. He doesn't belong on the psych ward. He is not mentally having any sort of issues. The only issue that he's having is that he is a sane person in a psych ward. And he is using his sanity to upend the institutions that are going on there. He's like, this is wrong. You know, he's the voice of reason. She knows that. What is she going to do? What is she going to fix? She can't fix anything. He's just you or I. If you or I are in that psych ward, we saw the same thing, we would be doing the same thing. She couldn't fix us. And the way that she goes about fixing him in the very end is lobotomizing him. Like literally, you know, making him into a child. I mean, she hurts him to fix him. You know what? That's true. That's true. Because she sounds so reasonable in that scene that I'm very tempted to believe her, honestly. And to like respect that she's like, no, we don't walk away from our problems. But you do have me on the point that, like, can she actually even convince herself she has that there's anything in him to that can be fixed, that she can do, that he's ever going to listen to her? He will never listen to her. Or she's just delusional, or she is just exaggerating to keep him there. And I think we can look to the camera language in that scene. And there's a lot of interesting things that Milos Forman does with the camera. One of the cool things that I read about that he did was kept the cameras rolling and didn't really say action or cut. And he would get these really interesting shots. Uh, you can see that kind of throughout the film. I guess there's a famous moment where uh, Louise Fletcher tenses up and, and gives a snarl and it's pointed at McMurphy, but it actually was towards Milos Forman who was giving her a note while she was doing the scene. So it was like, he really was combining capturing these people at different real moments. But what I want to talk about is the push in and the pull out. Anytime a camera pushes in, in this film, it's about creating order. And every time the camera pulls out like a slow pull out, it's when the real world is getting in. And in that scene that we just saw, when she starts talking, that camera does that push in. It's almost like the walls are closing in. And it's like, It's like his hands around her neck at the end. It's strangling the life out of it. I like that because the time that the Zoom really popped to me when it comes to anything that Nurse Ratchet did is in their very first therapy session. Mm -hmm. He does this thing where, you know, his camera's kind of looking around, checking the reactions of everybody in the room. But then he goes back to her and then he zooms in a lot when she says this one line. 
when she's talking to Harding about his wife, maybe you can tell us why you suspect her. And I wrote the line down even because I was like, why that line? Why does this line about some other guy's wife get the zoom in on her? And then I kept thinking maybe it's because in a way it's almost about Nurse Ratched herself. We just suspect this woman. We think the worst of this woman. Like she is this figure of evil. And in a way when we you kind of dissect most of her actions, she's really not that bad or she is rational. But that one line, why do we suspect her? Why is she one of the most iconic villainesses of all time? Because I feel like it's in these moments that she's controlling the group. Like she's saying no. She's baiting them to a certain extent. I think it goes back to the end. I mean, the most evil moment in this film is, you know, when we see Billy for the first time losing his stutter, he's had sex with this girl and she just goes after him because she's lost control. And the only way she can regain control is by basically torturing him mentally by saying, I'm going to call your mother. What does your mother think about this? And yes, she's so calm and, you know, and confident, but she is fucking him and she knows she's fucking him. But again, talking about sincerity, you could look at that scene and go, no, she's just saying like, we got to talk about your mother, but we now know she's evil. And I will also go to say that the camera does only one or two push-ins on Jack Nicholson. And in that moment where he's created this insanity on the ward for Christmas and, you know, Billy's having sex and everyone's all over the place, you know, Scatman Crothers is passed out on the couch. The camera pulls in on him. And in a way, even though he's given all these people freedom, he's done exactly what she's been doing. He just created his own version of the ward. His version of the ward is everyone should be like me. We should all be fine. We can get drunk. We can fuck. We can fight. But he's just as bad as her. He is her. He is creating another world. And I think that that's where they share a sense of control. His control is anarchy. Her control is order. Yeah, you're exactly right. Because basically what Jack Nicholson does this whole movie is impose a chaos on these men that they don't really seem to want. Mm-hmm. You know, nobody really is voting for this chaos. He shows up. People are calmly playing cards after he's lobotomized. Everybody is calmly playing cards again, mm-hmm. except for the chief. They went back to the way that they were kind of but happy. But the chief being. was mopping the floor, you know, or sweeping the floor just like he always did too. Everything is, you know, can reset. Exactly. So when you look at his actions, he's not really thinking about what's best for them, really. Mm-hmm. He's thinking about what he thinks would be best for them. I mean, you even hear this in like one of the very first scenes when he's trying to convince the chief to play basketball. Raise the ball up in the air, chief. Raise it up. McMurphy. What the hell you talking to him for? He can't hear a fucking thing. I ain't talking to him. I'm talking to myself. It helps me think. Yeah, well, it don't help him then. Well, it don't hurt him either, does it? Don't hurt you, does it, Chief? See? Don't hurt him. Right, like most of what happens to him in this movie is a result of him being completely unable to read the room or know that what he's doing is right. And he refuses to listen to any idea that he could be incorrect. And that's Nurse Ratchet's issue as well. She's not reading the room. She's treating them all roughly the same. You know, I know some people have been in there voluntarily. I think that there are some men that clearly benefited from his appearance there, a clearly chief. I think Billy, too. There were things that needed to be shaken out, and I think that she would never have got to that because she thinks that she's helping, but she's just doing what the status quo is and not treating people like individuals. Neither technique is going to help everyone. Okay, but there's a, let's talk about Billy. We're okay. jumping like way ahead to the end, but I, I think know. this is good because it is like the emotional climax of the film. 
So for people who haven't seen this in a little bit, what happens is Jack Nicholson decides he's going to leave. He throws a big party for himself and all of the, the inmates. He wakes them all up. He gives them shots of booze. Billy has been slow dancing with Candy, the girl that he sort of has a crush on, who's sort of Jack Nicholson's kind of girlfriend, but is maybe also a prostitute. Yeah, it's a little bit vague. can't tell. It's a little bit vague. Um, she's a woman in a movie from the 70s. We'll right. just say that. <laughs> and... Uh, he like sort of asks if maybe he can go on a date with her when Billy ever gets out, wherever mm-hmm. they are, when Jack and Candy are possibly in Canada. And then they have this conversation, Jack and Billy, where Jack is like, oh, he wants what I would want. He just wants to bone Candy. And he insists on that being what Billy wants and makes it happen. So I want to play that first. Date. Well, it'll have to be a fast date, I'll tell you that. No, 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 not now. When then? Uh, um, when, when, when I have a free weekend. You busy right now, are you? You got something to do right now? You got something to do? Uh, no, 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 Good. No. Well, then don't talk to me about when no, you're no, ready. No, yeah, no. yeah. Mac, oh, Mac, yeah. Ready and no, everything no, like that. No. Candy, come here a minute. I'm no, no. Yes, yes, yes. Candy, I want Mac, you to meet no. the famous Bill. Go get him, will you? So that happens. And yes, you can make the argument that he's like, he just needs a little push. Baby bird got to get pushed out of the nest. But a really interesting thing happens in the morning, which you really just only see on Jack Nicholson's face. Nurse Ratchet comes in. All of the patients are like drunk and passed out in various places among the ward. It's insane. She walks into like a bachelor party, college dormitory gone wrong. It's 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 insane. Like it sets up why she's so angry. I mean, like this, this chaos. Oh my God. Can you even imagine? You're like a medical professional and all of this chaos. And she can't truly show her emotion because then that would be something that would undercut her in the ward. She has to keep a status quo. She has to keep it in. So she gets Billy out. She finds him in bed with Candy. She says the thing about his mother. You know, Billy, what worries me is how your mother is going to take this. Um, um, well, you, you, you don't, don't have to t- 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 tell her, Miss Ratchet. Your mother and I are old friends, you know that. <sighs> um, please, n- 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 don't... Tell my Don't you think you should have thought of that before you took that woman in that room? And then she's telling Billy that she's going to go call his mom. And here's what I think is really interesting. When she says that, not only does Billy start freaking out and crying, as you might expect him to do, he starts punching himself in the face. Yes. Right? He starts punching himself in the face. And you get this look on Jack Nicholson's face. And you realize that is the moment that Jack Nicholson realized that Billy actually needs to be in here. This whole time, Jack Nicholson, I think, has been deluding himself that Billy doesn't need to be in here either, that Billy is just like him. Billy is a fine guy. He's not seeing what Nurse Ratchet knows about Billy, that Billy does have actual problems. And then when Billy starts punching him in the face, that should be a wake-up call that, no, he didn't just need to get laid. Like, this guy has problems that he needs to be working on. I totally agree with you. I think Jack Nicholson learns the most about these characters in that very end sequence because he's not learning about them individually, he's making like armchair expert determinations. And we talked about the music earlier. And I feel like Jack Nicholson's character is like, everybody's a theremin. And that's yeah, not good too. Enjoy your theremin. Let your theremin freak flag fly. Yeah. And I feel like Nurse Ratchet and McMurphy are the same. They want to create a world that feels right to them. Yeah. Nurse Ratchet is like, 
everybody, let's have some calming mashed potatoes. And he is like, sriracha for everyone. And you don't even get any other food. Just drink your sriracha. He is very much a teenage rebel. You know, he's like Holden Caulfield of the Oregon State Mental Ward. Yeah. I mean, he's a teenage guy who sleeps with teenage girls. In the book, nine years old. Oh, Jesus. They yeah. aged her from nine to 14. Yeah. I think nine would have been a real hard sell for your lead character. <laughs> so this is the second time we've had a movie age up the numbers of a statutory rape victim. After A Clockwork Orange. Oh, you're right. You're right. You know, think about this. McMurphy comes in. We don't actually have to see him hit an underage girl. We don't actually see him do any of the things he's been doing to get there. We don't see him starting that many fist fights. Really, he does a couple towards the end. But he, he has a point. When he's sitting down in the diagnosis scene, and maybe we should play a little bit of the diagnosis scene where he first meets the doctor of the ward, the actual doctor, 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 Dr. Spivy, who was a real doctor. Um, Dr. Dean Brooks. And by the way, who I think is great in this film, I think whenever you see the doctors in this film, they are portrayed so real that, you know, they're not overly emotional. I think we've seen so many passionate doctor scenes like, no, we got to get him out of here. You know, like, look, if you look at that movie with Robin Williams and Robert De Niro awakenings, you know, it's like, no, it's all this passion. And I think it's like doctor as artist, but this is doctor as bureaucrat. Exactly. And I think that there is something really wonderful about how, Behind the scenes, there's no big, no big plan. You know, they're just kind of doing their job. Everyone's just doing their jobs. Well, yeah. And I mean, if this movie is about a man's fight against the institution, you know, the larger issue of man versus institution, which is what it was to Mila Schwarman. You know, mm -hmm. this is a guy who comes out of Czechoslovakia. Both of his parents were interned in the camps during World War II. Institution, institution. They ended up dying in the camps. He is a man who was always at war with institutions, which I think is why he was a really good pick to direct this film. Absolutely. So, yeah, let's listen to him sitting down and trying to convince the doctor that he's crazy without trying to act like he thinks he's crazy. He's trying to draw this thin line of, am I crazy? But I don't know. Like, maybe the system is crazy. I mean, he's basically justifying his reason for being in the hospital as, I'm just too much of a cool primal man in a modern world that can't handle me. Mind if I smoke? No, go right ahead. Well, it um, says several things here. It said you've been belligerent, talked when unauthorized, been resentful in the attitude toward work in general, that you're lazy. Chewing gum in class. <laughs> well, the real reason that you've been sent over here is because they wanted you to be evaluated yeah. to determine whether or not you're mentally ill. This is the real reason. Why do you think they might think that? Well, as near as I can figure out, it's because I uh, uh, fight and fuck too much. And then he goes on to say, like, yeah, I've been in five fights, but Rocky Marciano's got at least 40 fights and he's a millionaire, which that is a point. Well, I mean, it's not a point. I mean, that's not a point. He is a professional boxer. But I, but I think when you, when you're listening to this, when you're listening to him, but it is okay. But he's got a point about society liking fighting. Yeah, but I mean, come on. It's like it's like the me going like, yeah, I beat that person up with a baseball bat. But uh, you know, baseball players carry baseball bats too. It's like it, like you know, it's like it's Congrats, a little. That yeah. is an at Twitter .com fight. <laughs> but I think what you're doing though, you're setting this character up in a way. To be too sympathetic. Now, I'm not arguing for conformity. Like, I don't think that. I just think that this movie positions one character. It's like what he is accused of for being mentally ill is like, you don't do what people tell you. You speak to your own mind. 
and you're a cool dude. You know, it's like, wait a second. You know, it's like you would put something in a mental institution for those things. Yeah. Like when he says he comments on, it, he says chewing gum in class. And a high school reference. Yeah, it's like it is kind of insane that this is where they would send him because it just seems like he would be put in the hole like Cool Hand Luke. Like, you know, he's not crazy. But he's trying to be crazy. I mean, that's what I think is so funny is like his performance of being crazy. I mean, here, this is even what he does right when he rolls into the hospital because he's putting on a show of being crazy. I mean, it's like a Bugs Bunny crazy. He gets the handcuffs off. He's jumping. He's hooting. He's being the Joker. He's doing things that actually none of the men in the institution do at all. You know, what he thinks of as crazy is not crazy. Well, and this kind of goes into the way Jack Nicholson approached this film. Milo's foreman wanted Jack Nicholson's character to enter in on an unruly ward. And Jack Nicholson's like, no, no, it's got to be a sedate ward. And the entry of McMurphy makes it unruly. And I feel like it's I'm on Jack Nicholson's side on that. I totally agree. I feel like if you walked into a zoo, then you're basically adding another animal into the zoo. He has to stir the pot. And I feel like he sits back and watches a lot. Like I mean, He just thinks he's going to make a lot of money playing like blackjack. It's going to be fun. Yeah, just win those cigarettes. Basketball. Yeah. I mean, oh, wait, two things, two things. One, I really like that we're kind of tracing this arc where he becomes basically like person on internet. Because right. I, I find that I have seen phases of person on internet develop, by which I mean, like, I have seen this happen to, like, several film critics, several just personalities, where when they feel like the world doesn't want to hear what they have to say, or when they feel like the world doesn't fit in or agree with them enough, they take on a new persona of, I am the only truth teller left on this planet. Right. Do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah. That same, t- well, it's like, you don't want to hear what I have to say? Well, it's because I tell the truth. You know? Well, it's like everyone is breaking out of the fucking matrix sometimes. But yeah, but to the point of like him showing up in this ward, let's talk about his very first therapy session because I think that's really interesting. He shows up and he makes his presence known right away. He's like a mild disruptor in that he shuffles his cards and he makes like Billy lose focus when Billy is trying to talk. And his cards have like nudie pictures on them. His you know? cards have nudie pictures on them. I like to call it nudie pictures. <laughs> <laughs> but he doesn't really do that much. He doesn't start the chaos. But yeah, but I do believe when he comes in, he, his goal wasn't like, I need to upend the mental health system. His goal was, I don't want to work in the field. I get to hang out in like a bed for 60 days and then I'll go home. It's like he basically found a way to con the system. And I think then once he gets there, he isn't treating any of these people any differently than he would treat, you know, prisoners. And he's kind of learning about them. He's he's very gentle with all of them. He's not aggressive to them. Exactly. Like, because I don't think that what he does in the institution is because he's that mad at the institution. Not at all. Honestly, like, I don't think he is like, this place is corrupt and evil and mean to its patients. I don't think he actually sees that happen. No. He's touchy about like when she is interrogating Billy about attempting to commit suicide when his like proposal of marriage goes bad. Mm-hmm. But actually like everybody gets uncomfortable in that. Like Martini and Cheswick, they're like, do we have to talk about this? Do we have to make this man be vulnerable? Which I think is like that scene to me right. is about like people wanting to protect their friend when they feel like he's vulnerable because they're thinking about that instead of the fact that it's maybe necessary therapy. But I also think 
the only reason why he gets up in her face is when she gives him shit. When he goes up to the nurse's station, he wants to change the music. He goes in there, you know, it's like. Yeah, he's the, acting like he's not a patient. He's exactly. acting like he's one of the staff members. And when he goes and sits down, you know, after they confiscate cigarettes, which is the, the one kind of relief that he has, he's like, give me a week and I will put a bug so far up her ass. Like, it's purely motivated by she just slighted me now i'm gonna fuck her over it, it it's not coming out of like oh my god these people they need me you know it's just like how can i make her lose control yeah exactly because right before that he's like why do you think she's the champ and they're like i thought you were the champ yeah. he's like i will be the champ and the saddest part about it is when you really connect the dots he gets lobotomized for a dollar he gets lobotomized because christopher lloyd is willing to bet a dollar that he can drive her crazy and he'll just right. do he doesn't like to back down from a bet but I go back and say, here's somebody who puts himself in this position. You know, it's sort of like saying, like, how unfair is it at this place that I myself made me go to? It's a very unsympathetic character. And I know we're having a very different point of view on this character now. But I do think he is slightly unsympathetic. The reason why I think this movie works is because you see these patients on the ward and you're like, Yes, they just need to get out. And But then, like you said, when Billy starts punching himself in the face, you're like, oh, wait, wait. There are bigger problems at play here. It's not this cut and dry. Discover why critics are calling Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes the best film of the franchise. What a wonderful day! It's a jaw-dropping spectacle that demands to be seen on the biggest screen possible. I need to go. Hang on. It is our time. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Now playing only in theaters. Tickets on sale now. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. Want to connect with a family member who doesn't speak your language? Then check out the language learning program Rosetta Stone on desktop or as an app. Rosetta Stone is designed to immerse you in the language you're learning through an intuitive process. Plus, the True Accent feature even gives you feedback on your pronunciation. And with a lifetime membership, you have access to all 25 offered languages. Get started today. Visit rosettastone.com backslash pod 50 to get 50% off your lifetime membership now. That's rosettastone.com backslash pod 50 for 50% off. Wait, I have a question. Mm -hmm. Are we old? Like, is this the kind of movie that when we were teenagers, we were like totally totally on Jack Nicholson's side, and now we are old, and now we're on Nurse Ratchet's side? Well, yes and no. I Look, I don't want him to be lobotomized. I think that that is a power struggle. But what we're watching here is a pissing contest. It's not a humanitarian. And this is not Robin Williams going, I have a new way to doctor. You know, he's not bringing anything new to the table but chaos. In the book, what happens is after McMurphy is taken away and lobotomized, most of the men are like, oh, we don't have to be here anymore. And they leave. And then, like, Chief escapes. But here in the movie, when we come back, most of the men are still there. And they are happily playing cards, just like they always had. They're playing a different card game now. But they're still happily playing cards. They talk about him a little bit like he's a a, a hero. Right. Where is the hero? Is he on this floor? Did he escape? What did he do? He's a legend. But he didn't actually change their lives in the way that he does in the book. Is and it I find that interesting, that the status quo is not on his side in the movie the way that it is in the novel. He's really the villain of his life. It's not Nurse Ratchet. He just keeps blaming her. Exactly. Which and is why he doesn't learn anything. Because, like, at the end, when he sees Billy punch himself in the face, he doesn't think, like, 
oh, have I got this wrong? He tries to just kill Nurse Ratchet. Well, I mean, when Billy kills himself, I think he goes, I know what you did. And she knows that he knows. And at that moment, everybody else in the ward doesn't know that. And it's sort of like they see each other in that moment. And so he's going to kill her. And you know what she does? She goes, I'm going to kill you. And she does. Like, he should have gone right back to prison after that. That was an assault. He would have been in there for X amount more days. But that wasn't because it was crazy. It was because she was like, you know what? You saw me. That's true. She really should have sent him back to prison. I don't think that he's ever even going insane. I, I think the way that you know he's not going insane, he keeps his clothes on. His clothes, like, I always think of him as, like, his Superman outfit. Like, his jean jacket hat, that's his life force. And at certain points, he's wearing the prison stuff over his life force. So he's kind of going in. And then at one or two times in the movie, he's just wearing mental ward outfit. And that's, like, the we- where his character's at the weakest. But whenever you see him get that jacket on again, when he's at his most disruptive, he is in his own clothes. Because he's not following the rules. Yeah, I mean, in this movie that I think has such a monotone color scheme, in a lovely way. Like, mm-hmm. I really enjoy the colors of this house. I'm in a moment where I really am appreciating, like, the Miami Beach, Beverly Hills Polo Club light greens mm-hmm. again. You have his dark jacket and his dark hat that just pop out against the ward from the second he walks in. You also have Nurse Ratchet's dark cape, which she just puts on to, like, mm-hmm. come in and out. And then the only really kind of weird color you have other than that, besides like Harding's colorful bathrobe, is that one red light in the hallway yeah. that looks just like the Hal Eye. And mm-hmm. it's just the all-seeing door lock Hal Eye redness. And other than that, this is a very cool, cool, cool world, which I kind of respect. I mean, that's another thing that they really had Milos do when they hired him to make this movie is because in the book, again, it's like narrated through the chief's eyes and the chief is on a bunch of drugs. And so the whole book is like kind of a crazy, trippy, psychedelic book. Like it has a lot of the drug imagery, you know, like people mutate, they grow extra arms, they turn into monsters. It's written to kind of look like Fear and Loathing or something like that. And then they hired Milo Schwarman, who does none of that. Like there's nothing crazy or psychedelic or surreal in here. There's not even a momentary like drug scene. I kind of hate those sometimes in movies where the characters are like, we're living in a normal comedy. Oh, but we're all on LSD for one scene. I know. I've seen those scenes so much and it's just kind of like, okay. And I get it because you want to show a scene like that. I think that... um, 40-year-old virgin or knocked up where they go to Las Vegas and they see like the Beatles show and they're just like in their hotel room. You see the way it would look from a straight person outside of it. I think Terry Gilliam did an amazing job in Fear and Loathing that created a whole world. But for the most part, it's always kind of handled in a way where I'm like, all right. It never captures exactly what you want it or the way it feels. Exactly. So I like that he did this where the people in the film are their own special effect. Mm-hmm. You know, the performances are their own special effect where all eyes, the only interesting thing happening is the actors. And even the way that they each are very different. I, I think that they all share a childlike quality. Uh, you know, I think that there's a naivete to them. And then, you know, there's a sweetness to that old man who just dances like he just dances around the ward. And then uh, Michael Berryman, who you might recognize from uh, the Devil's Rejects or The Hills Have Eyes or Weird Science. He's the, the kind of ball guy that gets drunk when they're, you know, putting bourbon through like his IV. He's he- the guy that they shave his head to look like one of the Saturday Night Live Coneheads. Oh, don't say that. The man is bald, Amy. He didn't shave his head. That's the way he looks in real life. Oh, is he naturally bald? Yeah, that's oh, like his look. Yeah, oh, yeah, I just yeah. thought they were trying to show off the shape of his head. Oh, no, no, no. He has made a great career 
out of being a very interesting guy. I didn't mean it as an insult. When I, my <laughs> nickname when I was born was Conehead. I had a cone-shaped head, and my parents watched Saturday Night Live. Well, you call up Michael Berryman. His phone number is right on IMDb, oh and you can talk to him about okay, it. Okay, fine. <laughs> Would it make you feel better if I said that when I was in high school? This is true. Uh-huh. I don't know if— Maybe I can find somebody from high school to back me up on this. I had a picture of Vincent Chiavelli on my high school binder. I love Vincent Chiavelli. He is one of my favorites. He's so great in this movie, too. I mean, Danny DeVito, a friend of Michael Douglas, that's how he gets in this film. I think the reason why they do such a great job is you talked about these scenes where they are doing therapy sessions. A lot of those were rehearsals. They were just extra footage to kind of figure out who these characters are. Uh, Milos shot that. they A lot of the actors lived on the ward under the schedules. They all tracked a person that had a mental issue that was similar to theirs. And at one point, Danny DeVito even had an invisible friend. Like being away from his wife kind of made him a little bit unstable. And he would see the doctor there and he's like, am I going crazy? And they're like, as long as you recognize your invisible friend as being fictional, you're okay. But you know, these guys really live the role. And I feel like that's why they don't feel crazy as opposed to what we just saw with the dream team, which was like the heightened, like that's the Hollywood crazy. These people feel real. It's They're not pushing. Well, yeah. I mean, I think my favorite story of one of the actors in here and the person they model their performance on is the guy who plays the Colonel, mm. the Colonel, you know, the guy in the wheelchair who I also love when he just starts beating up the punching bag with his. Cane. Oh yeah. I love that so much. But the Colonel came from this guy that they met in the ward who was called the emperor. And like, basically the emperor's whole story was this. He was just a quiet, nice man. He hung out in a wheelchair. He wasn't a big deal. He didn't do a lot of talking, except when you talked to him, he was like, oh, I am actually, though, the emperor of the world. And they're like, what do you mean? He's like, well, we have eight sub-empires. Each of his eight sub-empires was headed by one of his cousins, he said. And he took this fantasy so far that he had given each of the eight sub-empires their own anthem, which he could sing for you. And each one had their own postage stamp. So that they could mail letters to each other. And he would tell you sometimes which of the sub-empires were at war and what was going to happen. Amy, can I ask you, I mean, is this crazy or is this just the writing of the Game of Thrones? I know, it's kind of awesome. (laughs) Yeah, if he had just written this all down, it would be fine. I mean, like Jack Nicholson, he talked a lot at the time about how disturbing it was for him personally to he spent like basically four months at this hospital like hanging out with the patients the hospital was working the whole time they're shooting yeah. this movie and he wings. witnessed electroshock treatments yeah and he said he really wanted to see he's watched like four of them to get the right physical reaction to it and i think that's what makes that scene when you see him come back in you're like what what could have happened to this character by the way that electroshock scene one, it gets that close-up you're talking about. Like, that's the worst close-up we get of him when he's mm-hmm. about to get electroshock therapy. Oh, God. And the only thing that's really in focus is the plastic thing in his mouth to yeah. keep him from biting off his tongue. Two, right before the plastic is shoved into his mouth, he gets one more, like, Mick Murphy, I am not reading this room moment where he tries to make a mean joke about Nurse Ratchet. Here, let's just play that really fast. Would you sit up, please? Sure. Love to. Oh, boy. They're, uh... Might be a little fluid in them boots, you know what I mean, boys? Just a little leak. Light shine, boys, and send the specimen to Nurse Ratchet. <laughs> he laughs. A room yeah. full of people just ignores him. And then he gets electroshock therapy. And then when he comes back, I love that scene because it's basically just paying homage to a little scene from a movie from 1971, four years before, that all of y'all know, Willy Wonka. When Willy Wonka crutches down the red carpet and he's about to open up his candy factory. He's an old little man. Everybody's sad. He looks like he's going to fall. And then 
a somersault in the chair. I totally forgot about that. Yeah, that's a great scene in both of these films. It's a great scene because I think you see how intense that moment is and you don't know how he's going to come back. You know, speaking about these patients on the ward too, you know, one of them, they were actually worried about in real life that he was going to have a mental breakdown. Did you know about this? This is Sidney Lassick who played the character of Cheswick. Apparently, as the shooting of the film progressed, he continually had these weird, erratic mood swings and outbursts, so much so that he burst out in tears and anger when Chief basically suffocates Jack Nicholson's character. He had to be removed from set. The doctor who is in the film, who was also there while they were shooting, was like, I'm worried about him. I don't know exactly what happened to him. It was just being around that energy. He got into a very dark place. I mean, I'm fascinated by that because Cheswick is maybe my favorite supporting character. It's hard to say. Yeah. Because every time the camera is on Christopher Lloyd, I'm like, Christopher Lloyd is my favorite supporting character. And every time it's on uh, Brad Dorff, I'm like, God, he's basically like first gen Caleb Landry Jones, one of my favorite actors. (laughs) I love it. I love it. Give me more. Danny DeVito is amazing. But there's just something in the brokenness of Cheswick that Cheswick I love. and like, Harding, to ugh. me, are such an interesting duo. I feel like watching them and their interactions with each other. Yeah, like, let's listen to them when Harding is getting picked on for all of the men implying that he's gay, okay. which was more clear, in I believe, in the book. And Cheswick trying to get favor any way he can by sticking up for him. And, oh, my God, it kills me. Oh, <laughs> they're all crowding in on you, Mr. Harding. They're all ganging up on you. Is that news? No, they, they, they sometimes want to gang up on me, too, but Cheswick, I... Well, do me a favor. Huh? Take it easy. Take it easy. And but, stay off my side. But I only want to... I only want to... I only want to help you, I understand. Mr. But don't you want me to... Please. But I only want to... Please. But I only want to help you, Please. Mr. It's an intense scene. It's intense. And what breaks my heart about that is, you know, you mentioned that the doctor, that Dean Brooks, was worried about Cheswick... Harding? Did you hear about this? No. During the course of the film, he diagnosed the actor playing Harding, William Redfield, as having leukemia. Oh, God. Yeah, and he died the next year. Wow. That's a little... Sorry to spring that on you. Well, let me change the topic for one second and talk about another actor who I think gives a great comedy performance, and that is Scatman Crothers. Um, I love Scatman Crothers in this. He plays one of the night... uh, orderlies. And there's a lot of big gets in this movie. Like you have to buy the fact that he's going to let these two women in and he's going to allow this kind of party. And I think that he plays it with a sense of realism that it doesn't seem unbelievable that he would let these two women in. And also, by the way, what a lovely teaser of The Shining to have Jack Nicholson and Scatman Crothers. Oh, yeah. Tear for the first time. We actually have a special guest today, um, someone who actually worked in a psych ward. Uh, You might know him from the Upright Citizens Brigade, uh, shows like Daily Show and Veep. He is one of the funniest guys, and he has a brand new movie coming out called uh, Under the Eiffel Tower. Welcome, Matt Walsh. So, Matt, one of the things that I know about you is that you actually have real experience working in a psych ward. Mm Mm-hmm. What was that like? I mean, you know, we see a lot of it in in film, and I think you see a lot of like, oh my gosh, these fancy free people, or they're just a little bit kooky, but what's the reality of 
a psych ward? I think it was more akin to Girl Interrupted than uh, Cuckoo's Nest or Dream Team. Like, it was a locked unit. Right. We had adolescents. It was at Northwestern Hospital. It was a very prestigious medical school as well as uh, psych floor. The big push for our program was to not get the kids to be institutionalized. So they were kids from 12 to 21. Some kids were unfortunately like suicide attempts, eating disorders. Some kids were court ordered like gangbangers who would say you can either go to a psych evaluation or you can get, sometimes they were like wealthy politicians, kids or like wealthy business magnet, like big Chicago money didn't want to deal with their kids. So they send their kid in the hospital for a while. Like that was also part of the mix. And that's kind of what cuckoo's nest is. I mean, Jack Nicholson is avoiding prison time by going there. Yes, that's real. So what is that dynamic? Because there are people that are severely in need of medical attention. And then there are people who are there essentially avoiding prison or just kind of skirting to the side of the law. Yeah. There are different functioning levels. Like there are people nowadays, I'd say that most people would be on meds, although in Cuckoo's Nest, they probably gave them just general sedation. Right. The big innovation when I was there in the like say late eighties to the early nineties or whatever was things like Zoloft or like the psychoactive drugs that they were experimenting with. It was all about getting the medication right for the various disorders. And so I would imagine a psych ward now, like everybody is probably being experimented with on some sort, some form of medication. Yeah. And so, but not just like general, like in cuckoo's nest, it was like general sedation. We don't want a problem. I'm not sure. Or we're going to go in and scramble your brain. Yeah. And we find out that you're more peaceful afterwards. It's, it's, it's much more precision oriented and it's much more like, let's find a therapeutic level for this drug to bring their anxiety down or their mood swings down, Got it. et cetera. So you, we didn't ever see that. I, that idea, that dynamic of like, you know, obviously Jack Nicholson is there and he's, you know, challenging the war that like, that is kind of a, a, Fictionalized. I mean, even- no, actually not fictionalized. Because okay. there was a night, for example, there was a kid, Bobby, no last names. Yes. And another kid, Hispanic kid who was in a gang, big kid, Jose, I believe his yeah. name was. So Bobby was also a big kid. Uh, Bobby was like a wealthy kid who was angry. He had real, real anger issues. And he ran from the unit a couple of times because we would take the kids to like go-karts. If they were good behavior, the doctor would say they can go on activity tonight. Sometimes it was a cafe. Sometimes it was theater. Sometimes it was a ball game. Oh, wow. So I thought that was maybe part of like the fictionalization of this. So there are outings. like Yes. Depending depending on your status, like off unit status. And you can get weekend passes at this unit. They, They had varying statuses. The nurse staff were the kindest, sweetest human beings ever. Right. They weren't like Nurse Ratchet at all. They were right. super sweet and they were the heart and soul of it. And they were the veterans and you kind of, they would tell you what to do and you would help with the kids as much as you could. But one night, Bobby and Jose were in the, we had a pool room and they started whipping pool balls like a barroom fight Whoa. at the nurses, Rhonda and Beth. Oh, man. And they were crying for their lives. They were like, please stop it, please. Yeah. So it did get violent. So then you have to like call security up and our floor didn't have restraints, but we had what was called a therapeutic hold. So if you were freaking out because you found out you didn't get to go home for the weekend, like you thought you were going to do, you start breaking things. The staff was instructed. We had classes in this where you would take someone down, like 
one on each arm, lay them down, and somebody would lay across their legs, and you would get them to process their emotions before you let them up. And sometimes a hold oh, could wow. last 30 minutes. It could last an hour. If they were psychotic, you had to yeah. call the doctor so they wouldn't wow. harm anyone and get an ing- and they would you would shoot them up. I wouldn't, but a nurse would yeah. come in and shoot them up with a doctor's order. So you were an orderly there. So you were kind of like- I was a mental health counselor, which is okay. part of the nursing staff. So I was taking grad courses. So I was on my way to being a psychologist, but also working on the nursing staff, doing charting every day, writing wow. reports, uh, taking kids on field trips, taking kids to like get x-rays in the hospital, walking them to class, chasing them when they ran away. I think we all come from a background where this is probably pretty shocking and jarring if you're not in that world. Like, what was entering into that world for you like? It is as shocking and brutal as you think because there are kids who don't get better and that's heartbreaking. And then you see like the onset of like psychosis, like oftentimes kids from like 18 to 22 will have their first psychotic break, <sighs> which is an indicator of possible schizophrenia or other like yeah. diseases of the, of the mind. And so you see like a really normal, happy kid and then they come back to the unit like two months later and they're out of it. They're just completely out of it. And it's really like, oh man, yeah, that poor kid just had the genetic dice against them. And then I saw, I was just mentioning this to somebody else. We had a kid who was a sociopath, like yeah. definitely a sociopath, which I'd never met. And whenever they did improvements for like, it was a locked unit, mm-hmm. like they put windows that couldn't be opened or a door that couldn't be picked. They would get Danny and they would put him in the room, they'd close the door and they'd say, Danny, see if you can open that window. And like 20 minutes later, Danny would have the window open. Wow. So it was like, there was a lot <laughs> yeah. of that stuff going on. And, but the, the goal was I had like three, what they were called specials and you had primary relationships with three patients as a mental health worker. And you would try to spend time with them. And your goal with kids in that age is to like, get them to use their words. You're modeling adult behavior for them. And not to put it down on this level, but you're also, it's like what a camp counselor would do too, but yes, but very much like a camp counselor, exactly like a camp counselor. Their theory was behavior would rise to expectations. So if we pretend like these kids aren't damaged psychological right. people, then, and we go to a cafe at night, lo and behold, they keep it together. Right. So they didn't want them to be institutionalized where every need was taken care of them. They tried to keep their academics going. They tried to keep, like if, if you were 18 and there was a prom going on, they would try to give you the weekend pass for the prom oh, that's- so you could hit your milestones and kind of have a semblance of a teenage normalcy. I took a kid, a group up to a Northwestern football game mm-hmm. and we had seats and there was a girl, Kelly, who was in love with Jose, the big kid who was throwing pool balls earlier. And she was like 14 and she was, I don't know, she's probably borderline personality disorder was her assessment. And long story short, at the game, she was asking Jose, like, Jose, did you like my mix CD? Because yeah. they would play music in the van. He's like, your, your music's lame. You're such a poser, Kelly. Fuck off. And she got so upset. She ran out of her seat and ran to the stop of this top of the stadium and said, I'm going to kill myself. Oh, so I'm here with like four kids here. And I have another med student oh, no. who's from Russia. This yeah. guy, Yosef, I'm like, stay here, Yosef. And I went to the top of the stadium wow. and I'm like telling a girl like, Kelly, you're not really oh, going to do this. Are you right. like, but like also like, holy shit, I have yeah. no recourse. I'm not going to grab her. I just have to use my words. And I think I promised her like, if you get down. She climbed a little bit. She didn't really go the whole way. I said, I'll, 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 I'll give you Diet Coke or something they couldn't right. have. Do you want a chocolate bar? I literally bartered. Like if you come back right now, we'll go to the, we'll go get a Kit Kat and some Diet Coke, like anything I could just to keep wow. her from like climbing up further on the That's stadium. That's a wall. tremendous responsibility it is. to have. I mean, yeah. It is. And I was completely ill-equipped. And that's the thing. Like I would come home and I was doing sketch comedy at night with my first group, improv group, living in a little comedy ghetto. And you would just be awash with pathology. 
and it became very apparent that like I didn't have the resiliency to like not have boundaries so this stuff didn't affect me and I, I would yeah. bring it home and it was like really heavy and then I would like go out at night and do shows or have drinks or something just to like escape the real hardcore did you reality. feel like that's why you had to leave that yeah I at some point I realized like the the journey I was on was like I would be a psychologist I was never going to get through med school yeah. I didn't want that responsibility to like God forbid you give a weekend pass to, or you, you give bad advice to somebody and they take their own life. Like that yeah. is the worst case scenario. Oh my God. But that's why comedy is so easy. Like I have no problem failing at comedy, Yeah, which I've done many times, but it's like <laughs> the stakes are so low. But the other thing I was think, thinking is that they do like a guy like Jack Nicholson would be paired up with a lower functioning guy like Billy Babbitt. Right. And that's what's also weird. So you'd have like a rich kid from Lakeshore or North Shore, and then you'd have a kid who was like pre-Tourette's or something, and they would be roommates. And then there would also be like peer pressure, for example, among the girls. If like two of the girls were cutting themselves right. and your roommate was a cutter, sometimes those girls would start cutting themselves. Wow. So it's almost like peer pressure in yeah. the worst case scenario. No, it's like it's the mentality of high school, but now these are people all that are are dealing with heavy emotional issues and yes. and also don't necessarily probably have the tools cuz like that rich kid from, you know, Lakeshore is going to have some energy that might set off his Billy Babbitt guy. You know, it's yes. like cuz right. there were moments where it, they would be on sharps, which means you, you would have to strip their room of anything that they could harm themselves with. So pencils, pens, yeah. rulers, books, whatever, uh, plastic knives, you'd get it out of the room, you'd strip it. And then a kid had gotten a knife from the kitchen because we would cook meals. Another attempt to keep it less institutionalized is every night they would have a home cooked meal. There was a staff and on the weekends, us staff would cook breakfast. So long oh. story short, somebody came in the kitchen and took a knife. The knives were usually locked up. So we had to pick up a mattress and like run at the kid and take him down with a mattress. Whoa. And that was like a moment of real crisis. And like the guys who I was with and this other nurse is like, oh, come here. They were very, ca yeah. Steve, put the knife, Steve, put the knife down. All right, we're going to, we're going to run at you with a mattress. If you don't put right. the knife down. All right, Steve, we're running at so you yeah. with a mattress. And then luckily no one got hold. You just sort of tackled them with a mattress and nobody got hurt. And it was like very routine. Yeah. <laughs> but it was also so strange. And it kind of did come into your work too, because you did a movie called Martin and Orloff yes. where you kind of talked about like the patient doctor relationship. And yes. then one of the first stage shows at UCB in New York was about, you know, <laughs> the uh, Adler. The Adler. Yeah. It was like about when Burke got naked <laughs> on his own initiation. It was a great show, but it like that experience is so kind of unique. And it was, that's what Ken Kesey did. You know, he, he was there and he's like, I have to kind of yes. talk about that. It was like sort of vexing and freeing to regurgitate all these stories and all these characters that I had seen through my, there was one kid and I wish I had it. He was, uh, he had epilepsy and Tourette's. He was really, and he was also really stunted because he was on medication at a young age. Yeah. When kids get medication at like eight or nine, it, it messes up the growth of everything. It's yeah, just, so he yeah. was like a little person in addition to all these other problems, but he made these art projects where he would just cut like the little raisin brand box or the little yeah. special K box and Andy Warhol style, just glue like 50 of them on a big piece of foam core. Wow. And I wish I still had them because they were really compelling. It was like a outsider art that yeah. was really compelling, but I never saved one. You it's kind of like that. doing like being a patrolman for like two years or working yeah. in a squad car. Like there's just like life and death stuff. It's so real. It's like not what you normally get to see. No, it's a totally unique experience. Thank you, Matt Walsh. Thank you, Paul. I do think this movie does a great job of like telling you what its thesis is throughout the film. I think the probably the most important scene, which is uh, we'll play this one. 
I gotta get out of here. I can't. I just can't. It's easier than you think, Chief. For you, maybe. You're a lot bigger than me. <laughs> Why, Chief, you're about as big as a goddamn tree trunk. My papa's real big. He did like he pleased. That's why everybody worked on him. The last time I seen my father, he was blind in the cedars from drinking. And every time he put the bottle to his mouth, he don't suck out of it. It sucks out of him until he shrunk so wrinkled and yellow, even the dogs don't know him. Killed him, huh? I'm not saying they killed him. They just worked on him the way they working on you. You know, he encapsulates everything that we're seeing. Like the movie is very clean with what it's trying to say. And he disregards it, disregards it, disregards it every step of the way. It's true. And in the book, they get a lot more into like the chief's own backstory that he was a football star and he was a war hero. And that the dad that he refers to there, like his dad was, you know, a very high ranking Native American chieftain and ended up getting humiliated both by the government and also he married a white woman and that did not work out very well at all either. And there's this whole world of the chief that we really don't get to see, but you get this tiny glimmer of it right there. There's a lot of things about this ending at the end. You know, you see Jack Nicholson's character basically lose. He lost, you know, the system won. And then in a weird way, he kind of wins the last time because Chief kills him. Like Chief doesn't let him live like that. And then this final sequence of the film where Chief lifts this impossibly heavy thing. You know, he's a big man, but that thing is made out of marble. And I mean, it feels like it's probably easily 500 pounds. He walks through an entire room and then throws it through a brick wall that just kind of crumbles like a cartoon and he escapes for a movie that's so based in realism, the ending really is a little bit more surreal. Like it's. it's like, Are you gonna do a taxi driver on me? I don't know. I, I'm not saying that it didn't happen, but if you just look at that, that Are you is. Are say that the chief is lobotomized and that he's just coming up with this in his head? Are you gonna say that I'm Jack Nicholson gonna, is dreaming this? No, I'm gonna. I'm not gonna say any of those things, but I'm gonna say that I feel like that end is worthy of looking at. I mean, what he breaks through that wall. I mean, he just. Well, okay, we do know that when you look out that window, you see a busy street and then a bunch of barbed wire. Right. You don't see a giant open mountain range that he would be continuing to run towards. Yeah, I don't know. There's something smarter people than I probably have a, a, a stronger take on it. But There's no one smarter than you. Uh, yeah, I know, but I just like to say that to make people feel like they can come at me. Yeah, bracketing it with those mountains and then showing the mountains again makes the mountains seem more real. But those mountains are such kind of crazy, beautiful, bullshit mountains yeah. that that is sort of an interesting idea. I do say like, the two people who live in Los Angeles, the beautiful Los Angeles, where uh, hillsides and greeneries are all around. We actually do have a lot of hillsides. <laughs> We're like basically right underneath one right now. I, I do like how when he smothers Nicholson, you still see Nicholson, what's left in his body, fight to be alive. Yes. You know, which, of course, is just like a natural reflex. But the idea of this man who has been so vibrantly alive, for better and worse, continuing to try to fight to be alive just by impulse, mm-hmm. I think that says something about him, that he wasn't just like, and now I'm dead. 
And do you think all that water, I mean, I feel like usually when you see a bunch of water sprout up like that, it means something. Right. Life, rebirth. (laughs) Um, This movie, like we mentioned, did sweep, took home all the big Oscars. Did people love this movie universally when it came out? Actually, not that much. Really? I thought was a little surprising. A lot of people did very much like it. A lot of critics did very much like it. I think a lot of critics felt a need to say, like, it's a little paranoid for our day. It's a little dated. I sense in that attitude, kind of like if somebody made a Catcher in the Rye book today, where it would remind us of our, like, embarrassing high school things or the books that we loved and worshipped when we were younger and hated the system. To be remade at all, it almost feels like people felt vulnerable seeing this thing that meant a lot to a younger version of themselves be a film in the present. So they felt like they had to distance themselves. Kale really narrowed in on Jack Nicholson's smile, which she describes it in such a way that I want to kind of just read it. I think it's so wonderful. She says, he's got that half smile, that calculated insult that alerts audiences to how close to the surface his hostility is. He's the people's freak of the new stars. And I am fascinated in that. You know, we're like analyzing smiles a lot right now at this moment. And he has that smile. You know, she's like reading into it. I mean, couldn't you just say that that smile is a shit-eating grin? I mean, that's the, he is the epitome of that look. I mean, Jack Nicholson at a Lakers game has a shit-eating grin. You know, it's sort of like, I got it. Yeah. And, you know, we talk about this. I'm a nominal Lakers fan, as I am without team, but it's interesting to latch on to something. You are a very much Clippers team. I am. I haven't seen him at a Laker game and on TV. No, I think he is maybe in declining health, uh, from what what I understand. I wonder if this movie is more straightforward with Kirk Douglas, the way that we understand Kirk Douglas. He's got that jaw. He's the real American man. I think there's something sloppy, messy, and something that kind of embraces chaos and anarchy with Jack Nicholson that you don't get with Kirk Douglas. And Kirk Douglas in that role... I don't know if this movie is as interesting with that. Yeah. Like, you know, someone who feels like they're right. There's something about him. I do not want to see the Clint Eastwood version of One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Yeah, I mean, yeah. You want to see someone who feels like they're an asshole. It's something about that. And I do think that that smile is that you, like if you put Jack Nicholson and uh, Kirk Douglas together doing a scene, their two smiles are telling you two totally different things. I think that's exactly right. And I wonder now that you bring it up, like how much of me is layering the Joker and every other Jack Nicholson I grew up with over this, which I saw after. Right. So I'll read a longer bit from Times' Richard Schickel. Richard says, The trouble is that it betrays no awareness that the events are subject to multiple interpretations, and that the fault for this lies in a script that would rather ingratiate than embraid, in direction that is content to realize in documentary fashion the ugly surfaces of asylum life. Jack Nicholson plays McMurphy as an unambiguously charming figure, a victim of high spirits, perhaps, but without a dark side or even any gray shadings. In the end, the movie backs away from both the human reality and the cloudy but potent symbolism that Ken Kesey found in his asylum. Mm. So I think he's reacting to the Jack Nicholson as a Kirk Douglas, in a way. Right, that's actually really interesting. Maybe because he never got to see the Batman. (laughs) (laughs) Now, Amy, we have been in a drought and uh, not here in Los Angeles, but here on the show because we have yet to have a Simpsons clip for the last couple of episodes. Please tell me we're breaking that today. We are. There are many, 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 many references to One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest in The Simpsons. There's even a character called the Chief. Bart buys a red baseball cap, a destructive red baseball cap throws this red baseball cap in the laundry, and it dyes all of the family's shirts and socks pink. Oh, right. Yeah. Homer wears a pink shirt to work. He is accused of being a, quote, free-thinking anarchist. He is sent to a mental hospital where he meets an inmate named Leon Kompowski. Leon Kompowski believes that he is Michael Jackson. 
And Leon is played actually in voice by Michael Jackson. And this is Leon telling Homer all about the ward. Hey, Michael, I don't get it. These guys seem as normal as you and me. Homer, this is Floyd. He's an idiot savant. Give him any two numbers and he can multiply them in his head. Just like that. Okay, five times nine. Forty-five. Wow. We call this guy the chief. He's been here since 1968. Never says a word, never moves a muscle. Hey, chief. Hello. <laughs> well, it's about time somebody reach out to me. <laughs> you also, in the background, if you pull up that clip, you do see the colonel hitting the punching bag with his cane. Oh, I love it. Amy, it's number 33 on the list. It dropped from where it was in the original list. I mentioned that earlier. Uh, it was number 20. What do you think? I'm I'm good. I'm good. I mean, I like our conversation about it a lot. I like really us hashing out the Nurse Ratchet philosophy. Of I think who there's she something in what she stands for, and I think the conversation about this movie is really good. I agree. I feel like this movie really lays out its themes very clearly. I think that the acting is really good, but I I feel like the sign of a great movie is when you can kind of peel back layers and see different things. You know, is it about mothers and fathers? Is it about society versus chaos? Is it about order and control and I think this movie does a good job at making both sides murky. Yeah. Like there's no, there's no side, but I do think the only thing that this movie does say is at the end of the day, if you get too much in the way, you will be taken out by the monolith, which is government or society. You know, like if the, the, the boss always will win. I think if you keep on kind of uh, taunting the bull, you'll get the horns. It's true. Just like the breakfast club. I mean, I will say if we're going to have one, institutional bromance, I will take this over Shawshank like any day. Oh, absolutely. I mean, no, I think this is a really solid film. You know, we've talked about, you know, these big spectacle films. We've talked about these films that are pushing forward the medium, but I think there's room for a film that is just really good at what it does. Like, I don't think there's anything groundbreaking here, but it's just really good. It's a great example of character, story, and storytelling. Yeah, you know, I like movies with conflicting protagonists where we don't necessarily have to love them in every scene. Yeah. And I think bringing in adult-sized skepticism to McMurphy makes this film really work for me. All right. Well, there we do it. And a big thanks to Morgan Messenheimer. Now, Amy is not in the studio for this part, so don't think that she's got quiet or I'm talking over her. We're not uh, rolling the die because next week starts our month-long salute to the year 2018. Each week we'll be examining the films of this year and looking ahead and seeing what films might belong on the AFI list of the future. Next week, prepare as we talk about blockbusters. What were the highest grossing films this year? What are our Ben-Hurs? And what do we think will stay around? We're going to talk about a bunch of movies and one of my favorites, Aquaman. We're going to be talking about it. Cannot wait to get into that. But it's a really interesting list, the uh, top 10 films that made the most money this year. So that will be fun. Sit back, relax. You don't have to prepare anything. You just have to enjoy talking about 2018's biggest films. See you next week. 